You know, a dictatorship cannot kill the art because as a natural desire, the creating aspect, you can't take it away from people. You're listening to WERA 96.7 FM. This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. Today in the Arlington Independent Media Studio, I'm in conversation with Shabnam Curtis, Shabnam Curtis is the author of My Persian Paradox, a memoir about her life in Iran and the United States. The book has been described as a synthesis of personal experience, social change, and political insights both in the United States and Iran. The book is an account of immigrant experience and the psychology of integration. Shabnam Curtis was born and raised in Tehran, experiencing the Iranian Revolution of 1979 firsthand. In 2004, she immigrated to the United States, where she now works as a project analyst and teaches memoir writing workshops. She performs lectures to colleges and universities about her book and the concept of empathy and true belonging. She lives in Virginia and joins me in the studio today. Shabnam, welcome to the program. Well, hi. Thank you so much for having me. Your memoir, My Persian Paradox, covers a lot of ground. Uh, Your childhood in Tehran and your life in America are addressed in this book. Can you tell us about growing up in Tehran and your first memories? Of course, of course. Um, To me, Tehran is, is an endless city. It's a big city. As far as I remember, it's a crowded city. And I was very little when I was seven years old when the revolution started. I remember being on my father's shoulder. He was carrying me on his shoulders in the protests. People really believed in it. You know, people really believed in changing everything to a democratic government. So everyone was out, very excited, very empowered. Those are probably the very first memories that I remember from Tehran. But then I just... um, Grew up walking in all different city, in all different streets of the city, especially the longest one, now called Valiash, but it used to be called, called Pahlavi, with my friends having talks and going to coffee shops. It was it was my territory. It was I felt belong. I I was I I knew it inside out. It was just like it was your first home. It was yes, it was definitely first home. Yes. Why is it important to you to tell this story? In the beginning, of course, I, I was a little bit hesitant to write in English because English is my second language. Um, I'm a first-generation immigrant. And, but then I, was, I felt I was more comfortable expressing my uh, emotions in English. And I wanted to have my English-speaking audience to, to learn about Iranians. I got to the point that there is not enough of ordinary people in Iran and how they live um, here. The people didn't know much about us. As Americans, when we read about Iran, we, we tend to see the extremes. And what comes through in your memoir is everyday families going about their business and living their lives. Yeah, exactly. It's not a story of a of a heroine or, you know, an, a big accomplishment. It's just a story of an ordinary person in Iran and the, the, the challenges that we had to deal with. 
Well, I'm also interested in hearing about your young life reading and how it eventually influenced your writing. There's this, there's such childhood innocence that comes through in the memoir, and it just makes it very relatable. And there's a reference to a favorite story about a little black fish who wanted to leave her small life and explore the world. And to me, it seemed like a little story about curiosity about the world, which which you had from a very young age. It's also it's also poignant because it kind of gives us an image of you and the relationship with your father. And there's some difficult scenes about how books are eventually treated in post-revolutionary Iran. Can you tell us a little about the story that you remember so well as a child and the role that books played in your early life? Yeah, books are very dear to me. Uh, perhaps my best friends. I have to say that um, even through these past few days that um, I've been going through a lot of emotions, the only thing could calm me down was books. Mm, of course. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I remember just from very early childhood that my parents would read books to me at night at, at least to go to sleep. And there, there were my favorite books, some of them. I remember my mother would say, like she would skip some part of it and I still didn't know how to read but I would tell her that oh you're skipping this part you have to see and then yes we got to the point that uh, my father started introducing me books um, kind of like very existentialist books like The Little Black Fish because it was talking about a bigger life and it seeded the idea that the life is bigger than just having a having a beautiful house or just going to parties or you know they're just the cliches i just wanted to 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 explore life in a different way but then at some point in the beginning of the a couple a year or a couple of years after the revolution my father had a lot of good books but uh, he ended up getting rid of them it's um, like it's a few pages in the book that I explain. And my father wasn't the only one. Um, I read in other books that at the time when people were getting rid of their books, because otherwise they would be arrested by the regime, by the Islamic regime, the the highways getting like towards the south of Tehran, they were all covered, like the shoulders of the highway, they all were covered of uh, with books that people were getting rid of. But some of those people were arrested, actually. They never got back home. And you describe in the book a day when your father removed some of his most precious books and took them to your uncle's warehouse. And when I say they they took them to the warehouse, that was to... To burn them, To actually. burn the books. Yes, yeah. He, yeah. That had to be heartbreaking. It was very heartbreaking for all of us, but especially for him. I could... I could see no life in his face. Um, he was just, it was not only his books, it was his ideology, you know, right or wrong. He, he was a communist and he had an ideology for himself, but he had to step down of his political activities and all the books, all the knowledge that he had. 
hide his identity essentially. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I, when I remember when he was leaving the house and he had to be all very done, very conservatively because he didn't want to get the attention of the neighbors. So my mother and my father, they were putting everything together in a suitcase. And then I remember he said, I have to, the only place I know is going to my brother's uh, warehouse to burn them. Another thing that comes through in the memoir is the portrait of your family. You just described your father. He had what what you describe as communist ideals. And your mother, you describe as being conservative. Not, yeah. not I didn't know if she was necessarily religious, but she was conservative. And the difference between them was striking because your father had this vision or he had this this feeling about the world that living in modesty helps the common good, helps the common people. But your mother's family was very traditional, came from a privileged background. You grew up with beautiful furnishings, um, beautiful objects in the home. So that's already a disconnect. It was very confusing, um, but in a way, the, the, you know, the reason that I chose the, the word paradox in the title of the book is because every one of us is a paradox. My father was, as a communist, as an alcoholic, as a violent person, he also had a big heart. Um, so I, I've tried to put different memories to show all different aspects of his personality. And um, to make it even more odd, uh, he was the one who had a big influence on me. Uh, so since I was a very little girl, I was very influenced by the ideas of reading books and living in modesty. I think I was already growing up, like, not liking the luxury. I'm still fighting with that. <laughs> what do you mean by that, fighting with luxury? Um, I still feel guilty if I want to have a luxury life. Or oh, if or you buy are, something nice, you yeah, you feel yeah. funny. You find it, feel a little strange about it. it it's ah, it's oh. amazing how it impacts us. Yeah. Later in the memoir, we get to the point in time in the 1980s, and you were still living in Tehran during the Iran Iraq War, and I want to be clear to listeners that this is a, a very um, complex memoir. It covers devastating events, and you humanize this time so well on many layers. There's also some moments of humor in here, and that's what makes it really remarkable to to read. And some of the moments when there were bombing campaigns happening in Tehran, and the family was gathering in a small apartment, really during those nightly raids, and. There's just this hilarious moment about how you negotiate your sleeping space. Can you talk? Can you talk a little uh, about how that came together? My aunt, uh, my maternal aunt, had a, a kind of like a little villa, but it was a very, like you said, a two-bedroom apartment. Honestly, in like a, an hour and a half away from Tehran, um, which was safe. It was in the mountain. It was safe away from all the bombing, and everyone in the family was basically refuging there. Every night we had more people coming in. Like at one point we had like 30, 40 people coming in. and 40 people in a two-bedroom apartment. Yeah, yeah, it was really like... But we we fought with humor to 
to understand, to basically get a small space to, to sleep or even have a pillow to sleep. It was, there was not enough supply. There was not enough space. And like, I personally don't like to sleep between two different people. So I always wanted to have the corner place, but I wasn't alone. A lot of other people wanted to have the corner place. So earlier and earlier in the day, you had to stake out your territory in the two bedroom apartment. Yes. Okay. And it's also funny because the family negotiated where the where the uncles, the gassy uncles, yeah. as you describe it, they had to sleep in the hallway or maybe near Closer the bathroom. Closer to the bathroom, yes. <laughs> a small living room and one bathroom, actually. And then the first night, I remember, like, especially one room was for men, one room was for women. But the, the first morning, people got up, men especially were complaining about those gassy people. And then oh, one of my uncles, who is very famous for it, he he had to get closer to the bathroom in the living room, and they, that was the spot he could get. They were like, you're not coming back to the bedroom. <laughs> Unbelievable. That Again, we tend to see these moments or think about history with just extremist pictures and language, and you present just an everyday family trying to survive, and that's what I love about this memoir. I'd like to know, what do you remember about artists and writers trying to work in Tehran after the revolution and during this war? You know, right after the revolution, the music was banned altogether. It took a few years for some certain instruments to uh, to be released again, to be free to use. But for quite a few years, everything was banned uh, as far as music. But other branches of art weren't um, out of this whole mess. So... I think one thing that people started working on it very smartly was movie and cinema. A lot of directors, including the one that I admire, I adore, Abbas Kiarostami, he was not being political, but he was bringing out the problems, the issues that the society was facing. It was amazing how he was bringing a new, a fresh breath to, to the whole society, because everything was about war. Everything was about repression. Artists were not able to, like the, the artists who were painting, they were not allowed to have so many features in their paintings, or they were not allowed to put them in any galleries, or music was banned. It was, it was so hard to see that people still were working underground. It's like, you know, a dictatorship cannot kill the art because it's it's a natural desire of people the creating aspect of it you can't take it away from people there were a lot of people who were doing underground but some people were smartly like Abbas Kiarostami bringing it out to the society through cinema I want to remind everyone we're speaking today with Shabnam Curtis she is the author of my Persian Paradox. It's a memoir about her life in Iran and the United States. This book is, um, in a way, a coming-of-age story about your life. And I think one one aspect of Iranian life that, that people are always interested in is the dress code for women. And there's a point in the story where you have a recollection about a time when you went to Tajrish circle for ice cream with your mother. Can you talk about how you dressed for that outing and what happened? After the revolution, um, it was 
two years after the revolution, the hijab or basically women covering themselves became compulsory. At one point, my mother was almost losing her job as a teacher until she she was mandated to cover her hair and have like long sleeves and everything. And so, the hijab, just to be clear, is covering the head and full full dress. Right. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. It's not like burqa to cover your face. Different from the burqa. You just had to have your head covered and arms covered, legs covered. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But at one point you had to also cover your toes too. Uh, Like there are a lot of government offices that if you don't cover your toes, you can't, you are not allowed to get in. I've had that problem. Ah, okay. Um, Well, I've had problem that I had a a long, loose uh, dress that is called manteau. It's actually a French word, but we use hmm. it in Farsi. Uh, but because it was beige color, it was bright color, they didn't allow me to go to, to one of the government offices. So it's color and content. Yes. <laughs> My goodness. Yeah, I, I hear it's a little different now, but uh, but at that point, we had to cover ourselves um, the way that you just explained it. Um, and one other thing that was um, not allowed, it was basically illegal against the law, was nail polish. Nail polish. Uh, because of any color. Of any color, because if a woman has, uh, is, uh, if a woman wears a nail polish, um, they cannot do their prayer because they say when you are washing your hands then you don't wash your nails if there is nail polish covering it so it is basically illegal so if they would catch you if the morale police catch you with the nail polish in the street they could they were able to arrest you and not not just because of that also it's because they said it also takes attention of men and it can wake up their desire so you went out for ice cream with your mother. You were dressed conservatively, but there was something that you left on. Yeah, I was sitting in the back of the car. Uh, my parents were in front. My father was driving, and uh, I had a few strands of hair out of my scarf. I was just like, which is not, a, which was not, which permitted. was not allowed. That's what they saw, and they 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 started uh, shouting behind the megaphone that we had a, a red pecan. I don't know if anybody knows what a pecan is here, but it was like an old. Um, kind of like British car, I think, that was built in Iran. So they were they were shouting in the megaphone, the red pecan stop, and they, they actually stopped us in the middle of a very, very busy road. And as I was covering, I was so scared, as I was covering my hair to push it under my scarf, they saw my nail polish, the red nail polish that I had. And then that was, that was the end of it. They were dragging me out of the car and um, they pushed me in their car. It was a big SUV. There, usually there were two men in front of the car, two women with like a kind of like a black long scarf called chador uh, in the back of the car. And the women were pushing me. My mother was begging them to release me. She, she was crying. She was begging them because if they would take me and arrest me and take me to the jail, <laughs> who would knows? Who would know what would happen? It would, I could get lashes. I could be there for a night. And I had an exam the day after, a final exam for, for school. So it was, it was very scary. It was a really traumatic experience. At that time, you were, I think you were, you were a teenager. You were yeah. studying really hard. You had goals for getting into university. You loved engineering. You were curious about the world. 
but then you became married. Yes. Can you want to talk about that time? <laughs> you know, like, it was kind of like, I read it as, okay, I am feeling a little repressed at home. It's time to move out into the world. You were 19 or 20, and you got married. That surprised me as I was reading that. <laughs> yeah. um, the repression, you know, the repression was from the regime and the culture. So the culture. Um, even from parents' standpoint, I, as a as a teenager, as a girl, as a young girl, I was not allowed to meet with boys or be in touch with them or even having a romantic relationship with them. It was it was far away from the desire that a teenager has. Um, and it's very interesting because back then when I fell in love with this, which felt falling in love, it was obviously just just like an infatuation, a total infatuation. Uh, but when I felt like, oh, this is the dream person that I could build my life with, um, which happened to be a distant cousin and of from my mother's side. And then my mother was worried about me going out with boys. So she pushed me towards that. She was happy that, oh, okay, that's good. I was happy that I have a partner that I can actually build a life with, build a heaven for myself. It's so interesting that um, I also read it in... Um, Another book, Azade Moabeni explains in her book, um, the Honeymoon in Tehran, that uh, she was she was struck when she heard people like um, like young women think marriage as freedom because it's really not. Um, but back then, I thought you know this is the person who I can build my life with and go after my own values and independent life. An independent life, but that's not what happened because um, usually it's it's not the way that it works. It's important to note here that you had a daughter from this marriage. You sensed an opportunity to begin the process of leaving Iran and going somewhere, United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. There were a lot of places that, that could have become your second home. But what was it that what was the moment where you thought, okay, I am going to leave Iran, and how did you achieve that? Well, uh, the, the first marriage didn't work, and it got to the divorce point. Um, but then after, right after that, I started trying to find a job. I, I was at school, but I also wanted to have to build a career. That was hard enough for a woman because I was, especially I was a young divorcee. It was difficult not getting, not being harassed by men. Culturally, it was very difficult time very for you. Di- culturally, especially culturally at this point. But then I also had a daughter who who was tall. And at one point, I remember um, she was only like five, six years old. But I remember I took her to, and we, we waited in a, long, in a long line for face painting. And when we got to her uh, turn, the lady said, oh, I can't face, uh, I can't, um, paint her face because she's um, she's old. She's uh, she's not she was, young enough. She thought she was too old. To yeah, be. yeah. She thought she was like over nine years old. And I was like, I was so angry. I was like, no, she's not old. But what you know, the 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 tears that my daughter had, the heartbreaking event, and everything. I think that was the aha moment for me. That like, you know what? I don't want to live here. I just want to take myself and my daughter out of this country because I don't see any uh, bright future for women here. When it came time to leave Iran, 
the the fact that your daughter um, was the daughter of your first husband made it difficult, if not impossible, to bring her with you. Yes. And you talk about that in the book. Uh, yes. It was one of the very difficult decisions of my life. I have to say that the the whole process of the green card lottery made it a lot easier for us to come here compared to a lot of other people who came here with all different visas, other visas. So we were among the lucky ones. However, like you mentioned, um, her daughter, I wasn't, I didn't have the custody because uh, the mother doesn't have the custody of a child in Iran. She doesn't get it. It's autom- it automatically goes to father, even though my daughter lived with me. So I was not allowed to take her with me. And also my second husband did not have any desire to add her name to the whole file because of the cultural issues that like, you know, she, he didn't even have to get married to a person who already was divorced and had a daughter because there were a lot of virgin girls that he could get married to. Uh, so there are a lot of cultural issues here, but uh, it was it was a very difficult decision. However, I did see the bright point at the end, and I was hoping uh, not to take a long time to get her here. So I was like, I'll go, and then I'll take her. I didn't know it's going to take a long time. It was a few years, painful years, but I'm glad I decided it was difficult, but I'm glad I did it. Well, this is a story about resilience and sacrifice. And you've been living in the United States since, I think, 2004. When Iran surfaces in the news, as it has in this past few weeks, what is it like for you? I mean, you've ha- you talk about all the re- repression and conservatism that you grew up with, but you still have a love for this country. Yes. A lot of powerful emotions, um, depression, despair, um, feeling helpless, feeling um, that they, they have the survival guilt. Survivor guilt. Yes, because... That you- that you made it here. I made it here, but then I see what's going on in Iran. Um, That's very strong. I've been in touch with many other Iranian-American friends, and we all feel the same. Are you permitted to return to Iran? Do you you have the proper I mean, legally, yes, yes, but I've never even renewed my passport since almost 10 years ago. And now, because of the book, I don't take the risk to to, to go back, Uh, because I obviously talk about my opinion and at least one of the things that could put me in trouble is I'm not a religious person. And um, the punishment for that is execution in Iran. So I don't take the risk to go back. But it's being far from Iran um, makes it, I don't want to say more difficult because that sounds selfish, but makes it makes me feel really helpless that what can I do to to impact even a little, to help a little, because I'm the one who got out, but people are still under repression there. And they deserve freedom. They deserve to to be themselves and to talk about what they want. This is a powerful, brave, and complex memoir. And again, I'll remind everyone, the author is Shabnam Curtis. The book is my Persian Paradox. It's a memoir about her life in Tehran. 
Shabdan, thank you for coming to the program today. I appreciate you being here and being so candid about your beautiful memoir. It's my honor. Thank you very much. And thank you, everyone, for listening. You've been listening to Real Fiction on WERA 96.7 FM, streaming on WERA.FM, and you can find us at realfictionradio.com. If you enjoyed this discussion and are interested in Iran, check out last week's episode with political and data scientist Leila Hashemi. All episodes are archived on realfictionradio.com and your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening.